Pauline Boss is a pioneer in the study of family stress and ambiguous loss. Her most recent book is The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic. This is Pauline Boss. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right. I'm here with Pauline Boss. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, so you've written a new book called The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. Um, I want to ask you a few things about the book, but perhaps for the sake of this conversation and for listeners who may not be familiar with the term, it would be helpful off the bat to define what uh, you mean by ambiguous loss. Ambiguous loss is defined very simply as an unclear loss. There's no death certificate. There's no proof of a loss. uh, There's no documentation but you feel as if you have lost something, and indeed you have. There are two kinds of ambiguous loss, physical and psychological. The physical example could be um, my first research of, you know, four decades ago was with the families of soldiers missing in action in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. So the body is missing and the family doesn't know if they're dead or alive. But more um, everyday example would be when somebody uh, ghosts, ghosts you, uh, you've had a relationship and suddenly they disappear, a very cruel and I think cowardly way to uh, break up um, in, in modern days. The second kind of um, uh, ambiguous loss is psychological, as I said. The more extreme example would be, of course, dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's disease and the over over 80 kinds of conditions and illnesses that cause dementia. There is a great deal of it. And it's very hard on families. A more everyday uh, example could be addiction, or it could just be being preoccupied with your work or your telephone or or your devices so that you're you're not psychologically present for the person you are with. I see. And You've been working in, on this topic uh, and the subject for decades now. So I, yes. I'm kind of curious, why did you feel compelled uh, to write a, a new book about it now? Now, well, I'm a, I'm a retired professor and we keep reading and writing. I'm 87 years old and I've, I have felt for a long time, in fact, about 10 years ago, um, I already was on the topic of, I, I'm so irritated. You know, now that, now that um, this person has died, you have closure. Now that this person has been put to jail or, or um, prosecuted, you have closure. Once there's a human relationship, you, you don't have closure. You have a loss. Uh, but you don't have closure. There's a transformation and the bonds are continuing afterwards, though in a different way. Once you have a relationship, even a high school romance, uh, it is part of your fabric of your life forever after in a, in a sort of a symbolic psychological way. It helps shape who you are, whether it was positive or negative. And that's okay. So um, I'm saying when people say there's closure, it's much too absolute. And so as I grew older and, um, and also um, it, it was on my mind, I started to write about the myth of closure, but then my own husband 
um, got very sick and I had to set it aside for several years. So it, it uh, came up later even in my life and then the pandemic hit and then my husband died. Uh, so what to do for a retired professor who is shut in due to COVID and now alone. Of course I coped by writing and uh, I find writing is a good way to make meaning out of loss, make meaning out of things. And I still had that message of there is no such thing as closure. However, I must say, as I wrote and the pandemic continued, and the George Floyd killing took place here, not far from where I live, what I was writing changed and it became more societal, more global, uh, not just about the family. It became about the family of the world, the family of your community, the family of the nation, all of which I think are in trouble right now. Absolutely. And, and there are so many, as you were uh, speaking there, there are so many different branches of conversation that I would like to go down there. Um, but on that note of this book being more of a, um, you know, broadening to the scope of society, uh, one it of the is. things you, you talk about in it is the fact that um, a lot of the people who are, uh, believe that the pandemic is a hoax or, you know, are anti-vax and things like that, a lot of them are really just people struggling to deal with ambiguous loss. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I can talk about it from um, this perspective of the research that has been done in the past on things like cognitive closure, on the, the need for people to have certainty, the need for people to have absolute answers. Um, they're both issues of personality, but also issues of, of environment, of how you were raised, uh, and so on. But let me just talk a little bit about people who need cognitive closure, want order, they want things neat and precise and in order, they want predictability, they want decisiveness, they uh, have a discomfort with ambiguity and get very angry about it. We see that with uh, Dr. Fauci giving scientific information, which is never 100% certain. Science is not about certainty, it's about probability. Uh, and then they also have some more of what people call a closed-mindedness. So we have a certain part of the population that doesn't like uncertainty and ambiguity, and, and they get angry because of it. Uh, and and we, we see that it's in the news every day. What we need to do when we are overpowered by a larger force, which we are right now, the virus, we need to bend. We need to show our resilience like a tree on the side of a mountain that survives. Um, they bend in a storm in order not to break. And people who need certainty are more brittle because right now we have no certainty about this wily virus that we're struggling with. I'm old enough to have had another situation like this. And that was where I was a preteen in World War II. 
And we had this terrible power over us for four years. Many people died. We didn't know if we'd win, by the way. And what if we hadn't? And boys from our town would come home missing a leg or missing an arm and so on. So death and woundedness was around us. We couldn't get what we wanted in groceries. Um, many things were denied us during that time. I, I was um, watching my parents' faces, by the way, to see how things were going, if they were serene or if they were worried. And most of the time they were worried. So it affected me too. And now those of you who are still standing and still having a relatively good um, peace of mind despite all this, pat yourselves on the back. You are resilient people. And frankly, most of the people in our country are resilient, but some aren't, some are brittle. You can see that. And I'm curious, I love that, that line, that they bend in order not to break. Um, is there something, you outline in the book six different ways of building resilience, and I do want to talk about those. Um, but is there a way on a society-wide level, do you think, of uh, people who are um, not as resilient uh, who, or who struggle with uncertainty? Um, because this problem is going to come up again, you know, particularly with issues like climate change in the future, et cetera. Um, yes. Is there a way of sort of uh, helping people on a society-wide level deal with uh, ambiguity without making them feel as though they're being uh, tyrannized or imposed upon? I think if we understand uh, where it came from and understand what it entails, this, this um, uh, not liking ambiguity, this aversion to ambiguity, this aversion to not being in control. Once we understand it more, we will be more open to learning the other way. I have to tell you myself, um, my father was an immigrant from Switzerland and my mother's parents were both from Switzerland. Uh, I don't know if you know about Switzerland or not, but it's a country of precision. Um, and order. Uh, and, and so I was raised in that way. And when I went to college, we had a little seminar and we began it by everybody saying, or no, we had been going for a while. So there was a session where everybody was to describe the other person. And most of the other classmates de described me as decisive. Mm. And I was complimented by it. But looking back, no, that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> uh, it, it would have been if I was a corporate executive, I could make decisions very fast and easily. But in one's private life, in one's relationships, being decisive is not always a good thing. As I said before, you have to bend in order not to break the relationship or break yourself. It was only over the years of loss, experiencing loss, my little brother who died of polio the summer before the vaccine came out and so on. And then my sister's death and my parents' death and friends' deaths. 
that I began to bend and see that uh, it, it isn't, it is good sometimes to be decisive. If your house is in fire, on fire, you better be decisive and know what to get out, know to get out. But in, in human relationships, it's not always a good idea. So, and especially not when um, danger comes. As danger has come this time, um, gradual danger, long-term danger, not sudden danger. Uh, we have long-term danger. We are going on two years and probably we're, we're now told that the virus will not go away. It will just diminish and we will have an endemic instead of a pandemic. So there's no closure on, on this danger. All the centers on one of the six guidelines you were referring to, which uh, in my book I had called tempering mastery. Mastery means that we feel like we're in control of our lives, in control of our own destiny. It's an old sociological term. Well, hopefully most of the time we are. We have what we want. We have a trajectory in our, our life. Um, but now and then something happens like World War II, like the polio epidemic, like 9-11, and like now, where things don't, don't go our way and we have to bend. And some people, perhaps the more decisive, the more uh, rigid, the more that the more people that want a 100% precise answer, which can't come right now, um, they resist. And we're seeing that now. And not only do they resist, they get angry. And so there's much more anger and shooting going on now than there has been. And we need to sit down with each other and talk together about what this means, that some of us may not may be too, too bending. <laughs> you know, a, a, a woman in an abusive relationship who could be too bending. She needs to get out of it. Or a man who's in an abusive relationship. You need to get out of it, not, not uh, withstand it. So sometimes resilience is not the answer. Sometimes the answer is leave leave the situation. But this situation, we can't leave because it's global. Uh, so it's immensely frustrating to human beings who want to master their own destiny or who dislike uh, ambiguity. Yeah, and, and that is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because, of course, you talk about in the book of racism being a form of uh, ambiguous loss. And um, I'm curious where you sort of fall on that spectrum uh, when it comes to addressing that, where um, certainly um, people who are uh, being oppressed, it's a little, um, uh, I don't know if condescending is the right word, but it's, it's hard to tell someone like that, well, you just got to build resilience. And I don't, I don't necessarily feel no, like no, that. No, I wouldn't do that. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Resilience, uh, in everything I've written about resilience, I say there's caution about resilience. First of all, the term was developed originally with street children in Hawaii, street children who lived on the street because of poverty. 
And they found out that some of those children were resilient enough to grow up to be okay. Well, that's a good thing, but let's get rid of poverty. Kids shouldn't be living on the street. And so that's the downside of resilience. And we always have to mention that because let's go back to racism. The African-Americans have been immensely resilient to withstand what they withstood back in the days of slavery, being captured from their home country and brought across an ocean in terrible conditions. And then more terrible conditions here. They experienced ambiguous loss of being captured from their homeland and their families. They experienced ambiguous loss from being sold apart from one another. The families were sold apart from one another on the auction block and on and on. And the point I'm trying to make and others are today too, I'm just saying, give it a name that may be an ambiguous loss that has been transmitted across the generations. Now, there is already ongoing research that trauma from slavery is transmitted <clears throat> across the generations, both by um, uh, children seeing the stress and, and pain in their parents' eyes, um, which would be nurturing learned behavior, but also now genetics. So the epigenetic people are doing research and finding that Yes, there is an effect on the gene, uh, not on the gene itself, but on what turns on the genetic uh, process. But I would refer your people to read about epigenetics, which is a new science and will really tell us what this is all about. Um, I, in other words, it is true that there is a cross-generational transmission of trauma and ambiguous loss. We just don't quite know the mechanics of it yet, but they'll find it. In, in the realm of politics, um, something that you touched on earlier when you were saying how, um, uh, you know, kids in school said that you were very decisive and, and certain, and you, you said, oh, well, this would be good for a corporate executive type. Um, but I'm curious because uh, something that certain politicians and you know presidents who I've admired um, have have actually been you know seem to be much more willing to wade in the waters of uncertainty and the ones who are very decisive um, can rise to great heights but sometimes can be cut down just as easily I'm thinking of people like Lyndon Johnson who was very decisive on certain aspects of Vietnam but it, it ultimately he perhaps should have been um, more willing to see the gray. Uh, do you? And he did eventually. Right. Because of the civil rights movement. That was the man who changed. Mm. Um, you're, I agree with you 100% on what you're saying. Uh, but we have to also look at the total picture of this leader. Something in him changed. Uh, I like to think it was his meetings with Martin Luther King and him seeing all of this. Sometimes, like FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, it was his wife who kept nagging at him, uh, who saw, saw the gray more than he did. Uh, I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a rich kid yeah. uh, who went to private schools. Uh, Somehow Eleanor may have done that too. She certainly what came from a rich family, 
but she had a more open heart and she saw the diversity of the country and she influenced her husband immensely. We have social security because of her, because of her. Um, and, and Lyndon Johnson changed. We don't exactly know why, but I like to think his discussions with Martin Luther King may have, may have softened him, may have made him bend a bit. Uh, and then the civil rights legislation went through. Uh, I, I don't like to talk in absolutes, so I probably was wrong by using the example of corporate executives. I think today corporate executives, I believe, are studying the tolerance for ambiguity. They have revived the study of it, not in mental health, but in business, that, that uh, you need to have a tolerance for ambiguity because, because we need to change at certain times. Yeah. And if you feel you are precise and have the right answer, you may feel like uh, you're not, you may not be open to change that is necessary for any system to stay alive. Change is inevitable. And those of us who think we have the one right answer forever may not have it. As we're talking about this, a lot of, and you've mentioned this before, that um, a lot of Eastern thought tends to be a little bit more accepting of uncertainty. Um, Buddhism, certainly uh, a lot of, you know, when you're talking about, uh, I've heard you say fighting for closure can sometimes complicate your grief more. That feels like a very Taoist belief. Um, ha has Eastern thought influenced you here uh, at all or very much? It hasn't influenced me um, because I'm, um, pretty much, you know, even my foreign travels, while they have been in Asia, um, and I've worked with Fukushima in Japan a long time, ever since the tsunami. Um, so, so they have uh, talked to me about this, and I suppose, I suppose they have influenced me over time, but I probably was shifting early on. Um, I would say that the Native Americans in Minnesota influenced me even earlier. Mm. Uh, one of my colleagues was um, an Ojibwe woman who also was a family therapist from Duluth who influenced me a great deal about harmony with nature, but not just harmony with nature, but also mastering the situation. She had both. Uh, and. And it seemed like, and we, at that time, we were talking about caregivers for Alzheimer's disease. It seemed like having both a balance between uh, accepting the illness, which would be harmony with nature, versus getting the right doctor, getting the right medication, doing the right interventions, which is mastery, that you need both. And I begin to feel that's probably where I am. You need both, but you need to know when something is um, stronger than you are and you have to bend. Mm. I, I'm humbled by the fact that after 40 years of um, working on this teaching at the university and uh, all this research and therapy, it really is summed up in the serenity prayer. Yeah. Do you know it? it it's uh, Lord, grant me the serenity to uh, 
something, tolerate the things that come, wisdom to know the difference between what I can change, what I can't. You got it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and and uh, it's also important to know that I come from a stress background, stress-based, not a medical base, so that the people who are feeling overwhelmed by the stress, by the uncertainty and ambiguity we're feeling now, is a natural outcome of a pathological context. So the situation is sick, not you. If, and so it, 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 it normalizes people's reactions to being overpowered by an outside situation. And so we're talking a great deal about mental illness right now. I'm a little worried about that because um, it's not all illness that, that you're feeling. Some of what you're feeling are natural reactions to a crazy situation outside of you. Yeah. I would call the pandemic a really un irrational situation. I mean, it's the, the context is crazy, not you. Yes. Uh, and so we feel a little nuts right now, right? Being, I would never would have thought it would be two years when it began, but it is. And guess what? We're still here. Um, we have survived. Most of us have done pretty well with it. Let me say one other thing, though, about your generation and the generate, maybe not yours, it would be your mother's generation. Can I ask you, how old is your mother? Um, she is uh, in her 60s. So oh, that'd be right. So she was a baby boomer or yes. what? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Baby boomers had it pretty nice. By that, I say there was not a pandemic. There was not a world war. There was nothing globally that was life threatening. There were smaller wars and other things, but they, they were not, they did not have to bend during their lifetime by something that was so large that the entire world had to bend at that time. So this is a surprise for them and a surprise for your generation too, I would assume. Yes. Uh, but uh, the younger you are, the more flexible you are. So I think your generation is doing a better job. Also thinking of climate change at the same time, the pandemic really isn't our biggest worry. Climate change is. Uh, at least the science has gotten a hold on the pandemic virus. And the science has not yet gotten a hold on climate change. So many in your generation uh, worry even more about climate change. And I think you're right. But your parents' generation have, um, are surprised by this. People in my generation, over 80, remember World War II. And it gives us hope. By that, I mean, it was terrible for four years. And we know we lived through it. We got through it. And so we think we can get through this again. Well, I love that notion that part of the way you build resilience is sort of practicing these skills uh, of resilience, um, where certain generations that perhaps didn't have to, um, you know, bend, as you say, uh, maybe find it a little bit more difficult. 
So on that note, then, since we're talking about resilience, um, those six uh, guidelines for helping build them. One of the ones that I wanted to first touch on is the the fine meaning, um, which can be quite difficult for you know. Sometimes there is it, it would appear, and perhaps in fact is true, that there really isn't a meaning for why you know your kid fell out a window, whatever. Um, oh, yes, yes. Why um, why is this important? Well, I start with Viktor Frankl, you know, who was in a concentration camp and wrote the book, The Search of Me for Meaning, which I think is a terrific book still today. Um, and then the researchers today, Paul Bonanno and Niemeyer and others, who are also finding that the, the search for meaning is a way to live with loss and grief. You don't get over it. Uh, so based on that, but also based on my own experience as a therapist and as a private person, um, you have to make sense of your loss before you can live with it in more peace and, and calm. And, and you were exactly right that some losses will never make sense. Suicide, as you said, a child falling out of a window. Um, there are many that will never make sense, but that itself is a meaning. I have a loss that is meaningless. And from that, you can say, okay, I'll have a purpose so that other people won't experience this loss. And you see this all over where people who have had a terrible loss, meaningless loss, then decide to work on a project that prevents this terrible loss for other people. And that's how you live with it. You find a purpose to make meaning out of it in that way. Um, you know, if your child is kidnapped, you work on changing the laws about um, uh, kidnapping and prosecution. Um, I, there are many examples. If your child dies of an illness, you start working on the project to raise money to, pre, to prevent that illness and so on. And in more ordinary losses, um, you just make some meaning out of it, uh, such as with, with my husband dying at 88, and I'm 87 now, I make meaning out of it that we just had a wonderful life together. And, and that, you know, you were, you are grateful for what you had. So that's perhaps easier than if some people have a nonsensical loss. But somehow try to make some meaning out of it. Mostly you can do that by remembering the lost person or honoring them. I'm going to live a good life because he couldn't or she couldn't. I'm going to take care of our children together to honor him or her. Uh, I'm going to make a, a, a good life for myself because he or she couldn't, etc. Each person has to make it their own way. And by the way, some people do this through religion. You know, the meaning is that they are in heaven and I will meet them again someday. Or in, in Eastern cultures, um, their ancestors are watching over the lost person. Uh, in Fukushima after the tsunami, 
many babies were washed out of their mother's arms. Uh, and uh, they find meaning in ways that we, we may find um, strange uh, by saying, my baby is on another island and a kind woman is watching over her. I don't disagree with the woman who says that to me because there's no harm in her holding that idea. But more of them say this, my ancestors are watching over my missing loved ones and the children. Because that's a culture of ancestor worship. They never have closure. They in fact have every day to honor their ancestors. So that we don't do that here. Although some Americans do, who have um, an Eastern background, um, the Thai restaurant down the street from where I live has a plate of fresh food in the window each day before the pandemic for their ancestors. Mm -hmm. So there are different ways to make sense out of your loss, but you can't make sense out of your loss if you close the door on it. And uh, speaking of closing the door on it, um, we're, we're, um, we kind of touched on this earlier, but the idea that you've uh, spoken and written about of when you're striving more and more for closure, that can actually complicate your grief. Um, it does. And, and why is that? It wastes time. Uh, it freezes you in place. So you now have what I've called frozen grief. Um, because you can't find closure, you think you have it, but you don't because it blows up on you after some unexpected time. You waste time, you're waiting for closure, doesn't come, and so you aren't moving forward with your life in, in the um, most, most um, productive way, most functional way. So it's that simple, it just wastes time, it freezes you in place. You're, you're, and I must say, professionals have told you that, and uh, from Freud on down, and uh, talking about detachment, you know, you'll detach from the loved one or the or your pet or whatever that you've lost. No, you won't. It's part of who you are by now. And then I, as I've written in the book, unfortunately, these professionals who talked about detachment didn't do it in their private lives, in their private writings. When, when a, a patient said to Freud, I'm sorry, your, your daughter died of the flu. Uh, and he, he said, well, she's right here. And he patted his chest where the, he had a locket in his vest pocket with some remembrance of her. I don't know if it was her photo or her, a lock of her hair, but, how can a man who told us to detach also write that in private letters? And there were many more letters where he wrote to friends about um, not attaching, about the continuing bond. So it wasn't until much, much later um, that class, K-L-A-S-S, wrote about the continuing bond. And today, it's really taking hold because the research is supporting it that you live with loss and grief, you don't get over it, and that we can have very good lives 
even with the most painful, ambiguous losses like a kidnapped child. Uh, yes, you will periodically grieve. You, yes, you will never forget. But at the same time, both and, you can have a productive life with the other children, with other people, with honoring the lost person. And you also mentioned um, the religious aspect, where I've read studies that people who are religious tend to uh, tolerate certain life stressors more easily than those who aren't. Um, do you feel like there's anything particularly more difficult um, about building meaning in the face of uh, sometimes what appears to be meaningless loss if you're uh, not religious? It's a good question. Um, now, you know, I'm not a theologian. I've studied psychology and sociology. My, my answer would say you need to have some kind of philosophical um, model about yourself. Um, it doesn't need to be religious. And within who you are and what you think about the world, you should have some sort of framework uh, as you get older. It may, 20 year olds may not yet have it, but may be forming it. Uh, and you can find meaning within that framework. Now, let me tell you some that are harmful. I'm a bad person, so I'm being punished because I lost this loved person. That, that is self-degrading and self-degrading professional um, because self-loathing can lead to suicide and major depression. Um, but if you say to yourself, I'm finding out I can't always have my own way and sometimes bad things happen to good people which, by the way, is the title of an old book, which all of you should read. It's wonderful by Rabbi Kushner. Bad things can happen to good people. Yes, they can. And guess what? Good things can happen to bad people. The yeah. world is not always logical, or the world does not always go the way we want it to. So I think if you don't have a religious affiliation, a religious belief, you need to have some kind of philosophical belief to make sense of the world and what happens to you as you go through life. It can be existential philosophy, which was big in the 60s, but some of what I'm saying fits into that as well. It's not popular now, but maybe it should be. Yeah, certainly. Um... When, when you mentioned Freud, that made me think of a, a book. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, uh, it's called The Violet Hour. It's about six different writers at the end of their lives and how they dealt with uh, death. And he seemed to... Violet? Violet? What the kind violet, of hour? The Violet. Violet. Yeah. Violent Hour. No, I don't know it. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Violet, as in um, uh, there's a line from T.S. Eliot, The Violet Hour. Um, oh, of course. Of course. And um, he, he, Freud seemed to deal with it pretty well um, among the, the set of writers that they profiled. Um, and there were others like Susan Sontag was, was asked at one point, um, she, she had previously been diagnosed with cancer, did tons of research and overcame, got a second opinion and, and wound up getting cured. Then it came back. She tried to do the same thing. 
it didn't work out. And a doctor told her, you know, you should get your affairs in order. And, um, you know, if you have any friends and stuff like that, say goodbye. She's like, I don't have any friends. It was very, <laughs> it, it was very, um, yeah, I, sad. And I'm curious, uh, a couple of things I want to ask you. First is this element of community, um, where we're in a time where it's very hard to connect with people physically. Um, how important is some kind of support system for um, withstanding uh, the uncertainties of life? Very, very. And it's also important to keep us um, humble to, or keep us within this framework of belief system we have to keep us honest. Because if you're not interacting with other people who are like a mirror for us, by the way, uh, we get too egocentric. We, we, uh, we think we're right because we have nobody telling us we're not. Uh, so a human connection is, is very, very important. Now, it's really tough right now. Um, but there are a couple things in the youth culture that um, I just want to mention Please. in this regard. Now, it can be like an old grandmother complaining, uh, which it might be, uh, or it just can be um, a question. Uh, number one, texting. Texting drives me crazy, and also I love it. Yeah. Uh, both and, for example, I'm, I've had to see a voice doctor during the pandemic because there are days that go by that I do not use my voice. I have no one to talk to. Uh, so then my kids and grandkids text. I would love a phone call. Yeah. Just because it would be a little closer to human connection. Uh, and so think about that, maybe with especially people in your family who are older. I also know that it's very efficient and it's absolutely necessary. It's a wonderful invention. I use it a lot uh, in my work and also just for saying, you know, I'm on my way. I'll be there at 1230, etc. like that. Um, so and then the second thing that bothers me is this increase in family alienation, um, say, giving up on your parents, or um, chip called ghosting. Um, even when things go bad, you need to meet the people and sit down and have a talk. You need to talk it out rather than just close the door on it. Um, I see that as cowardly, and but also I see it as uh, lack of opportunity for growth and maturity. Um, it takes it takes a lot to face somebody. You say, "I don't want to be with you anymore," but in fact, we grow and mature. If you can say that, even on the phone would be better than nothing, uh, or a meeting would be better than nothing than just closing the door on it. And giving up on your family means that you want perfection. So you're now an absolute thinker. Um, very few families are perfect. A lot of them are really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but you can figure out a way uh, to, to um, be together in a way where you don't sell your soul. 
Um, my brother and I don't see religion nor politics the same way, but we're the only two people left in our family. I will not give up on him, and I sense he won't give up on me. We love each other. But we can't talk about politics, and we can't talk about religion. But there's still quite a bit we can talk about, our kids, our grandkids, uh, you know, that kind of thing, uh, which we do. No. So, so I think that some of, of the, the technical devices we have today allow for more absolute cutoffs, allow for more absolute breakups, and, and we need to tolerate the ambiguity more than we are if we are to grow from these things. Otherwise, I'm, I'm alarmed by the amount of family uh, alienation that's taking place right now. And I hope that your generation can somehow balance technology and its wonderful aspects with, with the, how can I say it, messiness of family life and relationships. No. Because they are messy. I wrote something um, in the front of the new book that I value so highly about that. And I must say, as I told you, I've learned, I, I was interested in precision originally, but, in, but I took from an earlier book and I put it in this recent book, like an enduring lesson that one is resisting. I learned with each loss that getting over it was not possible. I now walk with the tension of imperfect solutions and balance them with the joys and passions in my daily life. I intentionally hold the opposing ideas of absence and presence because I have learned that most human relationships are indeed both. No. They're messy. Yes. But they're fun. <laughs> no, I, I love that you said that. And it definitely doesn't feel um, like an old grandma complaining, as you said. Um, I think it's, it's very important. And it's something that um, e even, you know, my friends and people my age have, have certainly um, uh, considered and thought about and, and complained about. Um, there are entire communities online of people talking about how they're, they're cutting their family members, you know, I, you know, I finally, really? what's that? Are there yeah. really? Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, people saying, you know, I've cut my family member off and, you know, this person's toxic and I finally put up my boundaries and, you know, it's like, okay, good for you for setting boundaries. And, uh, you know, people, it, it, you don't get the full picture from someone's post on, you know, an online forum, right? but right. you do get, you can get sometimes thousands of comments, you know, applauding people doing this. Um, I believe in setting boundaries, yes. but not closure. Yes. Not closure. Um, some, there may be rare occasions, um, sometimes with sexual abuse, you have to put closure on physical contact, but you can still remember something hopefully good about that person, maybe not defining somebody as toxic is not always a murderer or a sexual predator. It's, it's just an uncle you don't like. Right. Uh, or somebody who disagrees with you or won't let you have your own way. Um, and so I do believe in setting boundaries. Yes. 
but I don't believe in closure. Totally. Um, and, and then the point you made about ghosting, um, there's someone who uh, will hopefully in a couple months be on the podcast who did some studies on ghosting where oh, really? it, it harms the person doing it as well as the person uh, receiving it. So it's really right. not a positive for anyone in the exchange. It's a lose-lose. Yes. It's yeah, a lose-lose. Yes. You don't grow from that experience, which you could grow from. It, it would be a lesson that would serve you well throughout life about setting boundaries and, and uh, sticking up for yourself in a, in a humane way. Uh, I can't go on with this relationship, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you come back a stronger person, yeah. a better person, and also more humane because you've told the person why you don't like them anymore. If you ghost them, they're like the family of missing in action soldiers thinking yeah. that, well, maybe he'll come back. Maybe she'll come back. It's very cruel. You are giving that person an ambiguous loss. Totally. Um, one of the things I was curious about uh, on, and that I wanted to bring up about that, um, that book of those, those writers at the end of their lives. Uh, yes. And how, how does, in terms of dealing with one's own mortality, which is uh, a, a risk for all of us every day. Um, yeah. Bigger for me. <laughs> Statistically, maybe, sure. maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't know. I like to go bungee jumping. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Okay, I got it. You're like my son was. Yes. Uh -huh. Good for you. Um, but that I would assume is some on some level you're dealing with ambigu uh, ambiguity. Um, and as someone who's dealt with loss in your own life, um, how how do you? Do you have any words of wisdom on this subject um, of how to cope with, uh, you know, one's demise? It's a, it's a big, you know, tangle. Well, it's, it's the truth, isn't it? And we, we, uh, we all will die. Um, and, and you're right that when will, when will a person die isn't a question that has an ambiguous answer. We, we don't know. We might know better if we have terminal cancer diagnosed by a doctor, but um, for the most part, people who are still functioning don't know. But I think, I think we need to um, give up on the hubris that we will live forever and live more so day to day. And that's where existentialism comes up again. Um, our viewpoint needs to focus more on what is right here in front of us, this day, this community, these people around me, uh, and focus on that rather than always thinking about how can I, um, how can I stay living longer so that, that we then ignore the day in front of us and the people around us. That preoccupation is more self-centered. And I would think if you forget about yourself some, by the way, I don't think entirely, I think a great deal about self-care and as I said, boundaries and so on. Uh, but if you don't focus on yourself all the time uh, and you start focusing on the humanity around you and the day 
you are living this day, it just automatically is a richer life. And so, yes, you will die one day. And when you get to be my age, you really do need to get your affairs in order, um, which I have. Um, and, and do it in a way that you don't have a tragedy about it, you know. I spread my jewelry out and ask my granddaughters, take some. Um, and because it needs to go to a new generation. Uh, I need them wear it before I die. And so I'm doing it now. And, and there are other things you can do that bring joy to your descendants that you can do beforehand and also help other people around you. Uh, who may may not have anybody in their life. So if you focus on empathy, if you focus on helping other people, you focus less on yourself and and therefore you worry less about when will I die? I know and by the way, I've made preparations for that as well, so that it isn't a burden on my children and grandchildren. So I'm going to live, as best I can, by the way, the pandemic hasn't helped the traveling at all. Um, and so I, I have reservations now in spring to go to New York. And also my daughter and I have reservations in October to do the Danube with the Minnesota Orchestra on a boat trip. Maybe we'll have to cancel, but right now it's fun to look forward to that. <clears throat> and and know that <clears throat> I need to do these things soon because of my age. Yes. Live do, life as it is. Do you find it's easier to, um, I, I, I've noticed, I, I sometimes I find myself wasting time or I'm looking at my phone doing things. Uh, do you find it's easier at your age to not do that? Because I've, I've had this conversation with my parents where, you know, like my dad says, yeah, you, you know, you want to get up early and attack the day because, you know, you don't have as many left. Um, do you feel that way at all? Does that part get easier? Do you feel? I used to be worried when I would procrastinate and waste time. But some long, some decades ago, I accepted that again when I was less decisive and less precise. Because I think when you have a day like that, when you're doing nothing, your brain is cooking something. And, and we, need to, we need to rest now and then and do nothing. Uh, because first of all, our body and mind want to, but also creativity may come out of it. I studied with a psychiatrist at Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison called Carl Whitaker. I actually did co-therapy with him for two years. He was a friend of R.D. Lang and Thomas Sass. And so that's all I need to say. He was absolutely out there with no, um, no agenda. He'd never have an agenda. We'd never talk about a case. Um, so, so Whitaker was totally um, full of ambiguity and disorganized and so on. I loved it. He moved me off a great deal of that center of precision and decisiveness. Uh, I learned from him greatly. And now I 
forgot the original question that was going, I was going toward, what was it? The, um, attacking your days and, and making the most of yes. every moment. Okay, so, so when he died, all of us who worked with him went to his funeral and the grandchildren talked about him and told us their favorite thing with him was when he would ask each one of them separately to get in the car with him and go and get lost. Mm. And they loved it. And then I tried it with my grandchildren and they loved it. They still love it. And they're now, you know, in graduate schools. Um, and with my dear husband, when he was ill, he loved it. He would say on Sundays, let's go get lost. Uh, and, and we would, and we would just get in the car and I would say North, South, East or West. And we would just meander. And this exercise of meandering without a plan, taking a path that you've never taken before uh, and going fishing, they aren't exactly what our culture uh, promotes, but they are exactly what we need on some days. Go get lost, be lazy all day, do nothing. You Don't, don't beat yourself up for that. It's a uh, good thing. Pauline, uh, we're, we're at an hour now, and I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, and I think that's a good note to end it on anyway. Okay. Um, this has been a joy. It, for me, too. Um, I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I love your work. And for anyone else who, who wants to check out your work, um, the book is, book is called The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. Um, is there anywhere else um, that people can reach you or that you want people to know about? Uh, www.ambiguousloss.com. Great. Um, okay, great. Pauline, thank you very much for your time. Uh, really uh, enjoyed this and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Be well. You too. Thank you to Pauline Boss and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.